Well, thank you again for your warm welcome. Yes, I am on holiday. Uh, I talked this through with my wife, but then she knows after many years that I can barely resist a, an opportunity to preach the word of God. Uh, that's always a privilege. And I count it again a privilege to be among you, many of you friends of many years standing. I'd like to turn you in the word of God to 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. We'll read from verse 2 to the end of the chapter. Let's hear God's inspired word. The Apostle Paul says, Open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, and that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who has done the wrong, nor the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Let's just pray once more. Lord, again, we thank you for your holy and infallible word. By your Spirit, 
teach us afresh this morning that our lives may manifest that godly sorrow that leads to salvation in Jesus Christ. May he be honoured in our lives, we pray then this day, for we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Becoming a Christian is the best and the most important thing that can ever happen to any single one of you. We come to Christ in many different ways. By that I mean our experience is personal, it's individual. You can find that in the scriptures, of course, when you look at the way Saul of Tarsus was drawn to Christ. The difference in the Ethiopian eunuch who was led to Christ as he found Isaiah 53 opened up to him by Philip. Then you think of Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to believe, to receive the things that Paul was explaining to her. Then the dramatic conversion of the Philippian jailer. But they all became Christians. And there are many of you here this morning who have become Christians. And a great change has taken place in your lives. You may remember the day when you heard those gospel invitations, when you heard that command of Christ, when the preacher pleaded with you to turn from your sin and to come to Jesus Christ crucified on the cross. And that momentous change took place in your life. You were born again of the Spirit of God. And ever since that day, there's been an increasing sense of awe and wonder and love and joy and thankfulness to God. But when you changed, when your life was transformed, what was the fundamental reason? What changed? Why did you change? It was because you had a new understanding of yourself and your relationship to God. You had a new understanding of God in his holiness, in his purity. And there you were in your sin, in your guilt, in your corruption, condemned. And you had a new then set of eyes to see the beauty the glory, the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you've gone on in your Christian life, there is one thing that really continues to trouble you and bring you grief and sorrow. What is it? It's that remaining sin and the battle that you have to fight day by day. When you became a Christian, you repented of your sins and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You saw the mercy of God. You had that real awareness of sin and with sorrow and with grief and hatred, you turned from your sin to God and you were intent on new obedience. But while having repented at the very beginning of your life, you go on continuing to repent and that is one of the foundation stones of the Christian life that a Christian is someone 
who having become a Christian, goes on bearing the fruits that are worthy of repentance. And that was true here in Corinth. Paul had come to Corinth, he'd gone to the synagogue as his custom was, he preached, he'd been driven out, and he'd gone next door to the house of a man called Justus. And there he continued to preach. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, heard the word of God and he and his household were converted to Christ. And we read that many, in Acts 18, many of the Corinthians heard, believed and were baptised. And it is these Corinthians and many others who perhaps had joined them that Paul is writing to here in 2 Corinthians. And we find here in verses 10 and 11, verse 11 in particular, at least six of the fruits of repentance, evidence that these were true children of God. And these fruits ought to be characteristic and are characteristic of every Christian in every age. They are true of churches because Paul is addressing the church in Corinth. It is true of individuals. These are the fruits that ought to be evident. So this morning I want us to expose ourselves afresh to the word of God. To search and to see if these things are present in our lives. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian... It should become evident to you why you are not a Christian. Because if these things are not present in your lives, there is no way in which you can call yourself a born-again Christian. You have not yet become a Christian. But if you are a Christian, as we examine these things, there is nothing for you to be afraid of. Because if you are a real Christian, it will only underline the fact that that great change has taken place in your life. But in order to help us, to help us to see whether those fruits are real and evident in our lives, let me first of all trace out for you some of the characteristics of what the Apostle Paul calls here worldly grief. There is in verse 10 the sorrow of the world that produces death. He's contrasting that with godly sorrow. We will come to that in a moment, but it helps to see the contrast. Paul mentions then these two kinds of sorrow, the sorrow of the world that produces death. Now you remember that our Lord Jesus Christ taught in the parable of the sower or the seed, the soils, whichever you like to call it, there was the preaching of the word of God, but not everyone received that word. It did not bear fruit in the lives of everybody. There were those, the seed fell upon the soil that was stony, and people fell away, having received the word with gladness but it didn't last there was no true repentance before God and the word was sown among the thorns and the cares of this world 
and the deceitfulness of other things like riches and desire for other things it choked the word there was no real repentance it didn't last it wasn't genuine and you'll find many people in this world today they're aware of their sin in some way or other they say oh well i'm not perfect am i uh, they may not want to call it sin but they would at least acknowledge that there are things that are wrong in their lives and they're not particularly happy about some of those things they're grieved by those things they're unhappy with themselves because they're making a mess of things they're upsetting people they're regretting the consequences of their behavior sin always brings inconvenience into our lives things that we don't like things that mess up our lives because we say things and do things that upset us and upset other people other people may deny the guilt of sin but they can't deny that the wrongdoing that they do and the grief that it brings in their lives they try and drown their conscience they're angry they're frustrated they become bitter and even more bitter as their days go by but it brings them sorrow they hate it because of what it does to them and perhaps to other people but there's no reference to god god is left out of the picture there is no repentance toward god and certainly there's no faith in jesus christ let me give you a few examples from the bible think of esau remember esau jacob's brother esau was willing to sell his, bar, his birthright for a, a morsel of bread he was desperate though afterwards for the blessing of his father and the blessing of god that his father could pass on to him but the bible tells us in hebrews 12 he found no place for repentance no place for repentance he sought it diligently with tears he was sorrowful he was distressed he was upset but there was no regret and no turning away from his sin no confessing his sin before god think of saul king saul you remember the tragedy how he ended his life on mount gilboa falling upon his sword that's a sign of a distressed man he had rejected the word of god he had disobeyed the word of god he had consulted a medium and it appears that samuel appeared to this medium and when he heard the words of samuel he was so distressed fear filled him he had no strength in his body he lay prostrate on the ground but there was no sorrow for his sin no turning from his disobedience and then of course there is the example of judas he confessed his sins to the chief priests and the scribes but he threw back the 30 pieces of silver i betrayed innocent blood and full of remorse what did he do he went out and hung himself you see there was a sorrow but it wasn't a sorrow there was a godly sorrow it was a sorrow that was unto death these men and others like them did not repent 
of their sin. Paul says such sorrow produces death. I would say that those sorrows that these men, Esau, Saul and Judas, those sorrows are the foretaste of the sorrows of hell. Now you may not be like Esau or Saul or Judas, but if you've not yet become a Christian, your sins and the sorrows that they produce in your life, they are a foretaste of the sorrows of hell. Someone said that sin unrepented of puts hell into the soul and then puts that soul into hell. Think about that. Why did our Lord Jesus Christ portray hell in the manner that he did? A place of outer darkness, but then he described it several occasions. A place of, what, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. That's not describing anyone enjoying happiness, is it? That's anguish, that's sorrow of an extreme kind. Extreme sorrow, extreme grief, extreme distress. But is it any wonder when our sins, which are multiplied, they bring sorrow and they would bring eternal sorrow. You will never know any happiness in hell because it is the place of punishment for sins that you have committed. And only Christ can set you free from that condemnation and from that prospect of hell. There is no peace for the wicked. No peace for those who live in sin and who do not display repentance toward God. You see, that ungodly grief, it leads to death because it focuses not upon God, but it centers upon ourselves and the way it affects us and other people. But that sin, you see, is a sin is a liar, it's a deceiver. It's a robber. It can never prosper you. And if you are still in your sins, and if you were to die in your sins today, you would face that weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. My friend, I don't want you to see that and to, to have that as part of your experience, which is why I'm saying to you now, why will you not turn to Jesus Christ here and now? Young man, young woman, don't go on in your sin anymore. Those of you who have got grey hairs, how many years have you lived without Christ? How many sins have you committed? It's not just sins. Sin is your problem. Your guilt before a holy God. Your corruption and pollution. Your whole nature. You remain in sin and it leaves you down 
that awful path to death, eternal death. I plead with you, turn to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to atone for sinners like you, like me. Paul is issuing here a warning to us. It's a warning not to go on in our sin, not to live in sin and certainly not to die in our sin, but to turn to Christ. Well, as you reflect upon some of these things, you'll be beginning to ask the question, well, is then my repentance real? That's a genuine question. So we want to look secondly at this godly sorrow that produces repentance, verse 10, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. In verse 11 we read, that they sorrowed, these Corinthians sorrowed in a godly manner. Totally different from this sorrow that leads to death. Because it produced true repentance, salvation. It was not something to be regretted. Literally it means sorrow according to God. Ungodly sorrow focused upon self and the way that sin affected self and made us unhappy. But this godly sorrow is according to God. It focuses upon a holy God. It makes God the focal point. There is a profound awareness of God in his beauty and glory and holiness and majesty. There is an awareness of guilt. There is an awareness of the corruption and that alienation. There was our, is ours by nature. When David confessed his sin in Psalm 51, that psalm of repentance, he had grasped the hold of the mercy of God towards sinners. He cried out, blot out my transgressions. He confessed my sin is always before me. This is a man who had walked with God, but he had committed a terrible sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had had her husband murdered, Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men. And he's crying out to God against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Judas, Esau, Saul, you never found those words upon their lips. But here is David, deeply repentant, a real sorrow for sin. He confesses it before God and desires to be clean and to break off from his sin. It is an expression of his deep hatred of sin for what he has done. And that is what you see here in the Corinthians in verse 11. Just to give you a little bit of background, I'm not going into the details this morning. Some of you will be well aware of what had happened in 1 Corinthians. But this church had been apathetic and blasé about a particular sin in the church. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was sexual immorality of the kind that wasn't even named among the Gentiles. And it caused Paul great anguish of heart and affliction and tears. He tells us that in 2 Corinthians and chapter 2 and verse 4. He dealt with the issue. 
But at that point, he had no confidence that it had any effect upon the Corinthians. Now here is the response of the Apostle Paul. He had sent another letter to them. It didn't seem to have any desired effect. They were still blasé, still apathetic. And then, oh, then his friend Titus came. And what a transformation took place. Paul could barely contain himself when Titus arrived with the news that the Corinthians had received what he had said and were expressing genuine grief and sorrow and hatred for their sin. Now he is filled with exuberant joy. The opening verses of chapter 7 especially verse 7 nevertheless God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus but not only by his coming but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told you told us of your earnest desire your mourning your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more he couldn't contain himself. We would say he's over the moon. He's just full of thanksgiving and joy because of the change that has taken place in them. So let us look a little more carefully, a little more fully at this sorrow now which is according to God. I'm going to lay out six things. I've joined one or two together. We lay out six things as we look at verse 11. Here are the fruits of repentance. Our translations perhaps are not at their best at this point. Because Paul actually says in verse 11 uh, there, Behold! And the emphasis is behold and the compelling evidence. He begins, yes, yes, what what zeal, what indignation, what it's it, coming at you thick and fast. What does he say, first of all? Yes, what diligence it produced in you. Gone was that apathy, gone was that blaseness. Here now there is eagerness, here there now is carefulness. You're no longer ignoring sin, no longer tolerating sin. This sexual immorality was a grievous public sin. It defiled the whole church. It was like leaven that leavened the whole loaf. You were arrogant. You were puffed up. There was no sorrow. There was no mourning. But now what a change. Now your repentance. You have a deep concern, a grief. It's gripped your hearts, a godly sorrow. You've been awakened out of your spiritual slumber. And you're different people now. You're dealing with sin. You're facing it for what it is. And you're showing a diligence. And then closely linked to that, secondly, yes, what clearing of yourselves, he says in verse 11. What clearing of yourselves. Now to clear yourself was to make a defence and give a defense against an accusation, against a charge. 
He says, you're no longer excusing yourselves. You're not resorting to self-justification. That's the kind of thing we do, don't we? Sometimes when we are confronted with our sin, we make excuses. We blame somebody else. Or we try to justify ourselves. Paul says, no evidence of that among you Corinthians. Instead, you're facing your sin honestly. You're owning up to a just accusation. You've confessed it. That's not an easy thing to do, but you've confessed it. This is evidence of the grace of God. Only the grace of God can make you face your sin and call it sin for what it is. I've spoken to people sometimes. I've said, tell me what it is you have done. And they tried to describe it and polish it up a little bit. I said, what does God call it? What does God call it in his command, in his laws? Can you name the sin honestly before God and confess that sin before God? That's what they were doing here in Corinth. They've now been roused to give an account of themselves. But then thirdly, yes, he says, what indignation this is another expression of their deep concern because of their sinful conduct and their refusal to deal with this particular sin it's an indignation against themselves it's the mourning that he expresses in verse 7 this godly sorrow They'd allowed this scandalous sin to go on unchecked. They shrugged their shoulders, they turned a deaf ear and a blind eye. But no longer, no longer. They realised this has brought shame on the church. This has brought shame on the name of Jesus Christ. This has brought distress to the Apostle Paul. We've dishonoured God's holy name. And you see, these are some of the thoughts that go through the heart of a true child of God when they come and face their sin. This is how you respond and feel. Here is a holy displeasure with sin, driven by a love for God, a love for God that wasn't there in the first place. A longing for purity, a longing for integrity. And Paul goes on, there's a fourth thing, yes, what fear, what fear. Some would say, well, that's, they were afraid of the Apostle Paul, he'd have to come again and give them a good drubbing down. Come with a rod of reproof. They would feel his displeasure. Well, perhaps there's an element of truth in that. But surely there is in repentance, in renewed repentance, a fear of God. A fear of God. Solomon tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job tells us to fear God is wisdom, to depart from evil 
is understanding. These Corinthians are departing from evil. When you begin to repent of your particular sins, you are turning away from your sin, from the evil of your sin, the guilt of your sin. You are confessing it before God in a way that you hadn't done previously. Can you understand then why the Apostle Paul is overjoyed, overflowing with joy? They're alive, they're sensitive to their sin in a way that they were not before. They were just content to go on and leave this sin unchecked. This is sorrow then according to God. God is the focal point. This is a forsaking of sin. This is new obedience. This is a new resolution and determination reflected in their lives, in their indignation. Their diligence, their clearing of themselves. But then there is a fifth thing, and I'm going to put these two things together. Yes, what vehement desire and what zeal vehement desire and what zeal what longing there was these corinthians had almost destroyed the relationship they had with the apostle paul and for some of them this was the man who had brought the gospel to them he was the means of their conversion to christ and yet they had turned against him and started calling him a, a liar they had condemned him Paul can say in verse 2, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've cheated no one. Those were the very accusations they were laying against this man, this gospel preacher, who had brought everlasting life to them in Jesus Christ. And they were throwing it all back in his face and despising him. But what a change took place. It only changed their relationship to God as they repented. It changed now their relationship to the Apostle Paul. Now there was a firm purpose, a resolve, a burning desire and a zeal to restore the relationship that had been almost been destroyed by sin. They longed to be reunited to this man they had wronged. They wanted to restore that relationship of trust and of love they'd hindered the cause of Christ by the hardness of their hearts and by their hostility to the apostle but now that has changed another of the fruits of repentance and then finally yes he says what vindication what vindication that is perhaps rendered best as requital. Now Paul is not talking here and the Corinthians aren't saying, well, we're taking our revenge, we're paying back evil with evil. That's precisely what he does not mean. What it means is the desire to see justice and righteousness win the day. We know from the rest of the writings of Paul to the Corinthians, the guilty person, this man who had committed this terrible sin, this grievous sin of sexual immorality, he also had been brought under discipline, and the evidence is that he had repented of his sin too. The church in Corinth, 
not just odd individuals here and there, but the whole church, wanted to put their house in order. They wanted to deal with the terrible effects of their sin. You proved yourselves, says the apostle in this matter, by your conduct, by your repentance. When you look at these things, you say, well, are they found in my life? Is that my attitude towards sin? Do I hate it? And do I show that same earnest desire for purity, for holiness, for righteousness, for justice? You see, these are the beautiful fruits of repentance. And they are beautiful fruits. They are pleasant. They are delightful. They are the signs of a healthy Christian. The signs of a healthy church. These are life-giving fruits. These are Christ-glorying fruits. Thomas Brooks once said that repentance is a continual spring where the waters of godly sorrow are always flowing. Godly sorrow then is to mark the life of the Christian till the day you die. There's only one place where you will never have to repent of sin, but it's not here. It's in heaven. There's no sin. You will be made perfect. You won't have to confess one sin in that sense in heaven. But while you are here, this godly sorrow ought to mark your life increasingly. So I ask you in closing this morning, is your repentance genuine? Is it sincere? Is it real? Are these marks found in your lives? Facing up to your sin, confessing it before God, forsaking it, hating it, not simply because it's displeasing to you and causes you trouble, but it is fundamentally displeasing to the Saviour who purchased you with his precious blood. To the God who called you by his grace into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Are there particular sins that you've been brushing to one side? Ignoring in the hopes that they will go away. Pushing them under the carpet. Is there something you go need to do to go away and do this morning? Is there some relationship you need to put right? Is there some deep-seated resentment that you bear towards someone? Or a jealousy? Or anger? You sinned against your husband, your wife, your children, and you've not sought God's forgiveness? You've not repented? and then gone and sought their forgiveness because you've sinned against them. Are there members of this church you don't talk to? You avoid them. 
What's the barrier? What's the problem? You hold something against them? Or you think they hold something against you? I can't answer that question. You alone can answer that in your conscience before God. But you see, sin confessed before God puts right the sins that you've committed against your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ or anybody else. You need to go and say to them, will you forgive me? That's the way in which that zeal for righteousness, that hatred of sin, that openness, that honesty, that's the way you deal with it. That's the godly sorrow that Paul is talking about here. The acid test, the acid test of whether this godly sorrow characterizes your life is this. Does sin make you unhappy because of the unhappiness it causes you and the effect it has on other people? Or is your sin make you unhappy because it is against God, a holy God? You want to love God. You want to serve God. And sin is an offence to him. If you are still ruled by your sin, if you've not yet become a Christian, you will be ruined by your sin. I said that earlier on in the sermon. I repeat it. I repeat it because it's serious. It's important. You will be ruined by your sin. You might say, ah, oh, you're only trying to threaten me. You're only trying to make me feel uncomfortable. I'm trying to speak out of love to you. Don't deceive yourself. My wife and I gave our testimony to the young people last night. And I was asked, is there one thing I could say to them? They might take it away and remember them. I said, don't listen to yourself. Listen to the word of Christ. You listen to yourself and you'll palm away your sin. You'll push it to one side. You say, it doesn't matter. You're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. Listen to the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, let me underline there is mercy with this saviour. He's the saviour of who? Sinners. Sinners. You don't have to make yourself perfect to come to Christ. You come as a sinner. You come and ask him to wash you clean from every spot and stain of your sin and to grant you new life. He receives sinners. Don't run away from your sin and deny it. Run to Christ and you will find arms open. Welcome to receiving sinners like you. He pardons, he cleanses. But there are some of you here this morning who will be saying, well, you know, I, 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 I am a Christian, but oh, my life is a bit of a tangled mess. I'm backslidden. I've failed. I've not been consistent. I've not been fighting. There are sins that are unconfessed in my life. The amazing thing is here, these Corinthians, when Paul first wrote to them, 
they, as it were, put their fingers in their ears and their hands over their eyes and refused to listen to what he had to say. I don't know how long their repentance was delayed. When David repented of his sin in Psalm 51, there was, you go back to Psalm 32 and you find he was a long time repenting. It was not until Nathan came to him and said, you're the man. And David experienced tremendous trouble of soul. There was like a drought in his own soul. There was a delay. The Corinthians delayed repenting. And you have made, may have delayed months, weeks, years repenting of some particular sin. And it's been something that has dragged you down. But they turned. They turned. They were not perfect. They were not innocent, said Matthew Henry, but they were penitent. They were penitent. Peter denied the Lord three times. Did Peter go out and hang himself like Judas? No. When Peter denied the Lord those three times, he went out and wept bitterly wept over his sin and Christ restored him and within 40 days that man was preaching a mighty powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost if you've backslidden return return to the Lord now confess your sin forsake your sin renew your hatred of sin and your love for Christ and how will you increase your love for Christ? How will you increase that hatred for sin? The more you love God because of what Christ has done for you, the more you will hate your sin and turn away from it. The more we see of God's love to us, the more we love him, the more we will hate sin. That's the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Now, of course, repentance is not the ground of your salvation. You cannot plead, well, I've repented of my sin. But it is the sure fruit. It is the sure fruit of the grace of God. We are saved by Christ and by Christ alone. He forgives me and he forgives you your sins he washes you clean but it is he who does it it is he who does it he is the ground and the hope of your salvation he is the one who works that godly sorrow then in us by his word and by his spirit that leads to repentance whether you are a young christian or whether you are an older christian it makes no difference there is a godly sorrow that is unto salvation not to be regretted. May God, by his Spirit, work those things in our hearts to bring glory and honour to our blessed Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, do we acknowledge your great holiness, 
your purity, your majesty, you are our creator, you've made us in your likeness. As image bearers, and we should be far more like Christ than we really are. Lord, we have sinned. We confess our sins. We are not what we ought to be. We're not what we should be. But Lord, you are a merciful and a gracious God. You've loved us. You've loved us from before the foundation of this world. You've loved us in Christ. You've sent him to be an atonement for our sin, to wash away our guilt, to renew our hearts, and by your spirit and by your word to work true repentance in us. Lord, strengthen then these graces. Strengthen our hatred of sin and our love of you. Help us, Lord, to go out from this place and to put right the things that we need to put right, to seek the forgiveness of others. Lord, as you have forgiven us, so help us to forgive one another. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.